Pray with me. Father, we long to see Christ, the truth and new life, the word that made the universe. Father, speak. For now we believe that we are set free by the word that lived and died for us. Amen. The story of Stephen is a good one. It's uh, Acts 6 and 7. And we're going to read how it ends. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know what to do with Stephen. I mean, I've got three pages on what to do with Stephen, so that's not totally true. I've thought about it, but in a very real way, I don't know what to do with the story of Stephen. I mean, part of me wants to be like him. Part of me wants to listen to this story as a what not to do. Stephen's story is a reminder to us that to say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, like we do every week, has throughout history cost people their lives. And that's a jarring reality. A reality that seems so far away from any of us. I don't know what to do with Stephen. I am envious of him, I think. Not necessarily in the way that he died. I don't, um, I don't romanticize his death in any way. I gave up my visions of being a martyr in high school. You're, I don't know if you remember the DC talk book that they published, Jesus Freak. There was like four volumes in the end. It sold really well. But this is, this is the brown matte cover with the ripped edges and story after story of people who had given their lives uh, in defense of what they believe for the gospel. People who were unwilling to turn on their own faith to save their lives. And as a high school student, it was a... I had to stop reading. I, was, I would read it before bed, and I had to stop, because it, it's, it's terrifying, uh, some of the stories that are in this book. And they're, and, and they're true stories, and it's... Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't always know what to do with all of those stories. And part of me felt like that, that, I, that I wanted that to be me, and I've stopped romanticizing that. But I am envious about Stephen, at least in the way that he lived. Here is a man who has confidence about him. Here is a man who believes in something strongly enough to die for it. And don't we all want that? I want that. I want to believe in something to live in such a way that I would be willing to die for it. 
How does that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. go? The, um, life is not worth living until you found something worth dying for. Or in another meme that popped up, find something worth dying for, then live for it. There's truth in those words. I want to be like Stephen. I want to live like Stephen lived. Stephen begins to live like Christ. This is what happens. He starts out serving, but by the end of his life, you wouldn't be blamed if you mistook Stephen for Jesus himself. His face glows, it tells us, and heaven opens, and there is a light that shines around Stephen, and Stephen even says the very same words that Jesus says. You can't even tell them apart by the end. Because Stephen and Christ have fused together in a way. I want to be like Stephen. Stephen finds a cause worth dying for. He begins to walk in the steps of Christ. But let's back up a second. Because we have not scrolled through enough calendar days from Good Friday to be at this point where now Stephen is giving his life for the gospel. It hasn't been that long since we were at Golgotha, the hill of the skull, and Christ was being crucified. And do you remember the disciples? Where were they? They were not there. They had scattered. They were hiding. The disciples weren't there. This group of people that the mission of God was supposed to hang on, they weren't there at the crucifixion. And we find them afterwards in a room with the doors locked and the windows latched and it's dark and they're hiding and they're terrified. They're terrified of the possibility of ending up like Stephen. The closest followers of Jesus, the strongest believers are terrified of the possibility that Jesus meant it when he said, as they have done to me, so they will do to you. The one who believes in me will do what I do. And they will do even greater things. No, thank you. They are terrified of this possibility. And so they hide. Even after the resurrection, they're back fishing again. And they seem to be hoping that they can unsubscribe from whatever list they signed up for. But the Holy Spirit can do a lot in a few weeks. The Holy Spirit does a lot in a few weeks. We're going to celebrate Pentecost uh, on June 4th. And Pentecost is probably the most underrated Christian celebration. If at Christmas we celebrate God taking on flesh and, 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 and becoming one of us so that he can know us and so that we can be known, that we can know God, Pentecost is, um, is, is sort of this happening again, but this time the spirit of Jesus comes down and lives in the church And without Pentecost, we have as little hope as we do without Christmas or Easter. Pentecost is is, is incredibly important, and you see the importance of it in the transformation of the lives of the disciples. At Pentecost, the disciples begin doing what Jesus did. This group of terrified followers who are locked away in a room, scared to death that they will end up walking in the steps of Jesus, begins to walk in the steps of Jesus. They begin to do what Jesus did. Their lives begin to look like Christ. Last week, Bob talked about um, how their lives begin to look like Christ. They, They share possessions and they share responsibility for one another. They begin to treat 
their possessions like Christ did. They remember together the teachings of Jesus. They start reciting to one another what Jesus had said to them. They start to talk like Jesus and say what Jesus said. They heal and perform miracles like Jesus healed and performed miracles. No one has any need among them. They preach good news to the poor like Jesus preached good news to poor. They begin to do the things that Jesus did. The community begins to look like Jesus because at Pentecost, the spirit of Jesus comes upon all the believers. And it's really easy to idealize this community. And you can find any number of church resources about figuring out what this formula was that the early church tapped into. This combination of, well, putting this much of your resources into community and into uh, caring for the poor and breaking bread together. And if you do all of these things, you will have 3,000 new converts as well. And certainly, a lot of the things we do at Grace, we do because the early church did them. They are the, they are the model for what the church looks like. But this church, it's, it's, it's kind of comforting. They ran into all sorts of problems really quickly. I mean, Peter is not that good at managing growth. He realizes that he is woefully unequipped for some of the things that are happening. James and John are good at preaching, but they're terrible at delegating. And Matthew has never managed a budget for an organization this large. The church in Acts has to try to sort through all of the issues that any normal church deals with. And the first documented issue they have is that there are a group of widows who are entirely neglected. This is, this is the controversy that brings Stephen into the church, that brings Stephen into the picture. Um, so so there, are, there are Hellenistic Jews and there are Hebrew Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews speak Greek. And for whatever reason, the Hellenistic, Jew, the Hellenistic widows uh, don't, don't receive the care that the other widows receive. Maybe it was a dropped email or maybe the bulletin was only printed in Greek. Or perhaps there was some more blatant form of... Um, of prejudice against these people who didn't speak the language of the insiders. Perhaps um, any, of, any of the following happened, who knows? But there's a problem because only half of the people are being cared for. The people who don't speak their language aren't being taken care of. This is the first major issue in the church. And it's brought to the attention of the disciples and they appoint a group of deacons and deacon. And Stephen is the first in a long line of church volunteers who are forced to overcommit. He's always around, he's got good energy, he's available, he's got the skills, so he's put on the team. He's put on the food team. And if you've recently signed up for the food team, watch out. <laughs> Be warned, it all starts with helping to make dinner. <laughs> Stephen begins to do what Jesus did. He feeds the hungry. Do not send them away, Jesus said to his disciples. You give them something to eat. Stephen does what Jesus did. He feeds the hungry. So all of this is happening. And at the same time, on the other side, there's this group of, of Jews uh, who, who, are, who are trying to figure out what these Christians are doing um, to their religion and their anti-Christian. And they come up with a new group and they call themselves um, the Synagogue of the Freedmen. It's sort of like anti-Christian group within Judaism that wants to kind of silence this sect within Judaism, these Christians. They're upset with how Christians are talking about the temple. They're upset with how they're talking about the scriptures. And so they create this group called the Synagogue of the Freed Men to deal with these Christians. And 
they realize that Stephen is a new deacon. He's young, he's fresh, but now he's a leader. And so they begin to pick on him a little bit, pull him out for debates. Stephen, come talk to us about this stuff. And they try to catch him in a controversy. Stephen is a new young leader that they think they can take advantage of. And so they begin debating him about Jewish history and about who Jesus claimed to be. And Acts says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it, Jesus told his disciples. For at that time, you will be given the words to say. Stephen is doing what Jesus did. He is walking in the ministry of Jesus. Just as the Jewish leaders could never get the best of Jesus in an argument, they can't get the best of Stephen either because the same spirit was in both. And so Acts tells us that they produced false witnesses who testified and said, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Stephen is walking in the way of Jesus. Remember, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, and finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Stephen is walking in the ministry of Jesus. What do you say in response? The religious leaders asked Stephen, just as they asked Jesus, And here, Jesus and Stephen part ways a little bit because Jesus' whole thing was being silent. But Stephen lets him have it. And like the next three pages in your Bible are just Stephen with the mic. His face is already glowing and you don't give the man with the glow a mic. But they give him a mic and Stephen goes off. He begins with Abraham and then Joseph and he spends a long time on Moses who would have been these men's favorite he talks about Solomon and the temple. And he, I mean, we're talking, he goes into detail. He retells them this history and, and, and is sort of, it, it must be a bit offensive to them, right? Because they know the history, yet he's going into all of this detail with them. And at each historical moment, Stephen makes the point that throughout history, there were always a group of people resisting what God was doing. The Spirit of God was upon Joseph, and yet his brothers wanted him dead. The Spirit of God was upon Moses, and yet they wanted the golden calf, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. The Spirit of God was upon the prophets, calling people back to God, yet they killed the prophets. The Spirit of God foretold the coming of the righteous one, but they killed those prophets, and they killed the righteous one. You men are stiff-necked, Stephen says, and uncircumcised in heart. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your, father, your fathers did, Stephen says. Christ was the cornerstone and you missed it. You don't get to tell the story. God gets to tell the story. The council is furious and they gnash their teeth. They tore their clothes with Jesus, but they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and saw Jesus standing. I think it's the only time in the New Testament where, except maybe in Revelation, where Jesus is standing and not sitting. Jesus is not a passive, objective observer of what is happening to Stephen. He is standing as an advocate, standing as if he is invested in the life of Stephen. And now the council rushes Stephen. They've heard enough, and they drag him 
out of the city, just like they dragged Jesus. On hearing what Jesus had said, all the people in the synagogue were enraged. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the top of the hill in order to throw him off the cliff. Stephen was walking in the ministry of Jesus. He was doing what Jesus had done. He feeds the hungry. He tells the story of God's redemptive promise. And finally, as they are stoning him, somewhere, somehow, inside of himself, he finds the prayer that Jesus offered in the final hour of his death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And this prayer, I imagine, was a stretch, even for Stephen. Love for one's enemies as they are condemning you. This is not a virtue that some people have and others don't. This isn't like something that pops up on a personality test. It's not human. This sort of love comes only from a God who is himself sacrificial love, a God who is himself radical love for the enemy. Stephen is walking in step with Christ. He is feeding the hungry. He's telling the story of God. He is forgiving his enemies. At Pentecost, a new possibility emerges. A life worth living takes shape. The followers that were terrified of walking in the footsteps of Jesus are emboldened to do just that because the spirit of Christ now lived in each of them. They feed the hungry. They bring good news to the poor. They retell the story. They love their enemies as only Christ could. Stephen walks in the steps of Christ and his enemies drag him out of the city and they take off their cloaks to stone him because they do not want to get blood and dirt on their cloaks. And they throw them at the feet of Saul. The ironic twist. And Saul swells with pride at the sight of another heretic being silenced. This is God's work, Saul says to himself. And countless Christians have said the same. Christians have too often found themselves in the place of Saul and not Stephen, holding the cloaks of those who stone or holding the stones themselves. And anyone walking in the footsteps of Christ will know that if you are Christian, you cannot throw stones and you cannot be the one with the cloaks at your feet. Justifying murder and death in the name of Jesus, in the name of being certain, in the name of being right. Saul will go on to be the great persecutor of the church. And he has just overseen the first martyr of the church. Saul has not yet learned that even death cannot deter this band of believers. He has not yet learned that those who have been claimed by Christ have found in him not only one to live for, but one to die for as well. Saul's heart is hardened by certainty to the point that he will kill for it. But even the hardened heart of Saul cannot deny it. When on a journey to Damascus, Saul is blasted by a brilliant light that knows his name. Even Saul, in all of his sureness and stubbornness, cannot hold back the kingdom of the resurrected Messiah, whose radical enemy love conquered the very death that Saul is meeting out. The great plot twist. The one who nods approvingly at the death of Stephen will die for the same cause. The same Saul with the cloaks of the stone throwers at his feet 
is the one who will write to the Philippian church, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, Saul writes, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus radically identifies himself with his followers. Why are you persecuting me? At Pentecost, the lines are blurred between where the spirit is and where the followers of Jesus are. At Pentecost, the followers of Jesus begin to do what Jesus did. They feed, they tell the story They love their enemies. Those who believe in me will do what I do and even greater things. I will not leave you, he said. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. You are in me and I am in you. I Bob said it well, we are not as hopeful as we ought to be about what God wants to do in us. God gets to tell the story and our story is told by our radical union with Christ, by the fusion that happens like it happened for Stephen as he began to walk in the ministry of Christ as he became Christ. It was in his union with Christ, this intimate relationship, that that allowed Stephen to live a life worth dying for. And we ought to be hopeful of the same thing, that union with Christ giving us a life worth living. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to walk in the steps of your ministry. I pray that you would give us a radical sense of our union with you, of what that union makes possible. I pray that we will know that you live in us and we live in you, that if we abide in you, we can have bright hope for today. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.